Is he looking? He sure is. No, don't look. You'll ruin the moment. Did you make sure I was seated next to him? Weeks ago. Did you, uh, I reconfirmed it today. I feel sorry for him about the divorce, but I can't say I'm not thrilled he's on the market. He does seem nice. Nice? Are you kidding me? He's straight, handsome, intellectual, and available. Do you realize how rare that is? That's like, it's like finding a snow leopard in your backyard. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. No idea what it's like to be single and in your 40s. It's like trying to rent out a beautiful apartment where a murder took place. Everyone's spooked. Welcome back to Who and Company. It's episode 55. I'm Drew. And I'm Brent. This month we have one of the busiest podcasters on the planet, the incomparable Erica Ensign. She talks with us about finding the time to record so many podcasts, how her love of Doctor Who was influenced by her mother, and being a champion for the defense of the Reboss operation. Then Erica brings along her pick of the month, the TV Land midlife comedy drama Younger. We discuss her love of the show, who it was made for, and how COVID restrictions may have altered what might have been. By the way, we spoil most of this series during this episode, so be forewarned. But that's not all. Erica also tells us about Kitten Academy, a 24-hour live feed of kittens that kept her spirits up during the long lockdown. And all that's coming up right after this. To begin, we are doing a teaser campaign, and we're thinking about sending... Swedish fish to bookstores around the country. Maybe six weeks before the publication date. Try the green ones. They're delicious. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. These are not Swedish fish. Tastes more like gummy bears. Still gummy bears. Well, they're shaped like fish, so they're Swedish fish. Actually, your Swedish fish are not Swedish at all. At home, we call them pastelfiskar, but I prefer jungelvrål, which are black like tar with a bitter licorice taste. Well, well, send uh, jungelvrål to the uh, two bookstores. Jungelvrål. 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 Please stop saying it. Our guest this month is a founding member of the Verity Podcast, regular on many incomparable podcasts, a Hugo Award winner, and a wonderful human being. Erica Ensign, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Um, can I just say that I am really glad that you're here and that you actually taught me something by listening to uh, Lazy Doctor Who. Um, it's the whole Doyless versus uh, Holmesian perspective thing. Watsonian. And, and Watsonian, Doyless. yes. Oh, I should <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, edit. I, I realized that I am totally the doyless person when i'm watching shows and movies and and i'm always getting on my wife's nerves saying oh where have i seen that person before and then i'll go look them <laughs> up <laughs> or saying something like well that character probably isn't going to die because they just killed off a main character like two weeks ago that type of thing but um you actually put a name to it so uh thanks for educating me on that 
You're welcome. I actually I actually learned that myself on Verity, my other Doctor Who podcast. So I, it's it's fun to pass that stuff along. I, Every once in a while, you, you learn something and you pass it on to somebody else. For example, I also learned the term headcanon from my friends on Verity Podcast. And I am the one that introduced that term to most of the people on the Incomparable Podcast Network. So every time they use that, it makes my heart warm a little bit. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. I love that one, too. Um, and of course, just like everybody else uh, on this side of the podcast, we're, we're probably fairly annoying to uh, watch anything with. Uh, or just sort of pointing things out. It's like, my wife is like, can't you just watch the show to watch the show? I'm like, oh God, no. Not since I became a podcaster. Are you kidding me? Everything like, has to be with be a like? critical eye and I'm writing notes. I'm like, but you're not doing a podcast on this show. Yet. Yeah, right? I'm not doing a podcast on this show yet. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's, let's talk about podcasts. So uh, how many podcasts are you a regular on these days? I hate it when people ask that question because I don't actually know. Um, Is it safe here. to say more than five? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, more than well, ten. It, it, definitely not more than ten. Somewhere in between there. And it varies. Like, I just finished up the saga of rereading epics uh, with Lisa Schmeiser, where we reread uh, Julian May's saga of Pleiocene Exile and Galactic Milieu series uh, for the Incomparable Network. But that was like, uh, you know, a podcast that has a beginning and an end because there were nine books to cover. We covered them and we finished. Um, But the last episode only went out last month, month before, something like that as we record this. So technically, that's not still ongoing. Um, but then uh, Erp Chirp, which is about the TV show Winona Erp, was lying fallow for a while. And then now it's back because we're slowly catching up with the uh, last season. So it, the, the number varies all the time, but it's usually in the, I don't know, five-ish, half a dozen, say half a dozen, just to round it out. How many of them are weekly? How many of them are monthly? Um, let's see. Verity is the only one that is consistently weekly. Nope, I lied. <laughs> Verity is weekly and Total Party Kill is weekly. I'm not on every episode, but I do edit a lot of the episodes, including some that I'm not on. So it feels like it's a weekly podcast because I'm usually editing every week. Um, and then there's like the other end of the spectrum, Lazy Doctor Who, which literally just comes out whenever the heck we feel like doing it. So sometimes that's five in a day and sometimes that's five in six months. It really, <laughs> really depends. Was that part of the initial plan when you're like lazy Doctor Who? Could we just just do it whenever we want? A hundred percent. That's that is exactly why we named it that because when I first suggested to Stephen, my spouse, hey, maybe we should watch all of Doctor Who and podcast about it. He was like, "Are you serious? You want to do another podcast?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yes," because I feel like for me, that's a that's a motivating factor. If we just said the two of us are going to watch all of Doctor Who, maybe we'd get to it, maybe we wouldn't. Whereas when I know I am doing a podcast, that sort of like helps with the forward momentum, especially when it comes to something like Doctor Who, where I've seen a lot of it but not all of it, and then there's some of it that's you know reconstructions, which I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about those. So I, I managed to talk Stephen into it, but. With the the caveat that it would not be something where we felt like we were pressured to do it in any kind of a time frame, so we just do it when we feel like it, and it's fun. You know, my my favorite episodes are the ones uh, where you watch ones where you haven't seen them, and especially when you like them, uh, like um, Colony in Space. That was really fun to listen to, as uh, you just loved every single episode, <laughs> and that's not common in Doctor Who because a lot of people think that story is boring, but. Um, 
Oh, it was not. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It is. And I'm really sad that we are soon to, I think, fairly soon to reach the point where I've kind of seen everything well enough that I at least have some impression of it. Whereas, you know, the last few Pertwee couple seasons, like... I mostly it will be unknown to me and then we're going to get into the Tom Baker era and I will have seen every story at least at least once. Your perspective of Pertwee has changed since before you watched them, right? <laughs> Watching Doctor Who in chronological order is not necessarily something that I would recommend to other people. Like you don't need to watch Doctor Who in order, but boy, if you do, it feels different. It is a different experience than all of my previous poking around and hippity hopping and and seeing bits and pieces was like I have an entirely new respect for and affection for the third doctor because I had only seen a few stories here and there. And it's like when you visit somebody and like, you know, they're a couple and you only know one half of the couple and the other half of the couple seems like they're kind of jerky when you just like meet them the first time. But after you've hung out with them for a while, you're like, no, no, they're not jerky. That's just like they're just sort of acerbic. And maybe they, you know, they're they're not as, uh, as as overwhelmingly friendly, but you can see that there's actually real love there between the couple. Like I wasn't able to see that real love between the doctor and, and the people around him, the third doctor, until I had seen those relationships evolve in front of me i think speaking of i just finished listening to the last episode of kyle and joy's uh five years rapid mm-hmm. this morning um oh, cool. it was like such a such a nice wrap up uh to such a lovely show and that's one of the things too is when i <clears throat> when i first joined doctor who fandom rather than being a fan of of the show but actually joined the fandom i did so through podcasting and it was such a weird thing to meet these faces to the voices that I've been hearing and such like but now I haven't watched an episode of Doctor Who in so long but I still like listening to the podcast because it's like visiting with friends and so mm-hmm. it's like oh this is the conversation we'd probably be having if we were in person exactly because yep. if we were in person we would be at a convention so you know again <laughs> it is it is constrained to a certain level of social interaction but at the same time this is a nice nice thing you know like half the podcasts i do i just do it because i really like hanging out with the people i'm with you know like Brent. it's it's like yeah we're hanging out once a month we get a nice quality time and we get to bring another friend in here let's do this let's talk about some doctor who and some other stuff yeah at least 85 percent of my social interaction is just doing podcasts (laughs) well let me ask you this what is it about podcasts that uh is so appealing what is it about the the actual medium itself uh, oh, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's just, it feels like even if it's not a podcast I'm on, if it's just something one I'm listening to, if it's one where I've been listening long enough that I sort of know the personalities of the hosts, even if I don't know them in person, it still feels like being a part of a conversation and the camaraderie. And then when I'm on a podcast, it literally is a conversation and camaraderie and I think over the the course of my podcasting career, I have I think gotten a lot better at assessing media. Like I went to I went to film school technically, um, and it did not teach me how to break down films the way that doing a podcast and just re- repeatedly watching things and talking about them and 
the back and forth discussion. I mean, it's probably because when I was in college, I was super, super shy and I was not good at group discussions. And podcasting is a way to do a group discussion where I don't actually have to be in the room with the other people. So that takes a little bit of the load off as well. Uh, But it's just I feel like I get a lot more out of what I'm watching, um, which is sometimes a double edged sword. But I, I I. I also remember it better. I have a terrible memory. Usually I have to read a book or watch a movie two or three times before it actually sort of sticks in my head. But if I do a podcast about it, that thing's that sucker's up there for forever. So it, it, it's helpful on, on multiple levels. With all the podcasts that you personally take part in, do you find time to listen to podcasts that you're not a part of for pleasure? Uh, I do, although it's a lot fewer than it used to be, um, and I currently don't have a commute, so that's even you know less. I find that I mostly do only just listen to podcasts by people that I know. There are very few like you know celebrity podcasts that I listen to, or uh, I don't do any fictional podcasts. Um, I, I do a couple of more like storytelling type podcasts like uh, Ear Hustle uh, about the prison system or The Illusionist, which is all about words and the episodes are short. But for the most part, uh, I do like I will listen to all of the episodes of the Incomparable podcast that I'm not on. I will listen to all of the episodes of Total Party Kill that I am not on um, and other shows on the network because I know most of the hosts that are on the network, many of whom I've actually met in person. So it is just like sitting around and listening to my friends in a, you know, maybe like in the next room over and just eavesdropping on their conversation. And then if they say something that I don't like, I don't have to just yell at my phone. I can actually type to them on Twitter or in Slack and be like, this was wrong. Stop being wrong on the internet. And then we'll have a good laugh. So uh, let's get into Doctor Who. What is your Doctor Who origin story? How did you find it? Uh, my mom found it, or my dad found it, or my uncle found it, depending on whose version of the story uh, you listen to. It was uh, they. It started being shown on PBS in the Milwaukee area, which is where I grew up in Wisconsin. And um, somebody noticed, a, I think, an ad for it, and I think it must have been before it actually before they aired the the first Tom Baker episode, like they had just gotten it, and. I want to say I was five-ish at the time, and my mom and dad are huge science fiction geeks, and so they started watching, and they both really liked the show, but my mom became a ridiculous super fangirl, and I mean, she was a member of at least two different Doctor Who fan clubs, and that was like back in the day where you got your fan club information in the mail, like she has fanzines and stuff, Um, so... I don't I don't know what the first story was that I saw. I don't know exactly when it was that I started watching. I just know that Doctor Who has been a part of my life for so long. It's just it's it's really part of the fabric of my family. So it's just deeply, deeply ingrained. But I know I know for sure it was Tom Baker that we started with because that's where PBS started. So I assume he's maybe he's your favorite since he's your first. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's really hard. I like. I really see Doctor Who as, I mean, I think when I was a little kid, I may have just seen Tom Baker as like the uncle that came to visit once a week or more than once a week, depending on how they were running the stories. So choosing a favorite doctor just feels like, like, would you choose your favorite parent? Would you choose your favorite child? Maybe you would. Um, So (laughs) there are definitely, definitely family members that I would rather hang out with more than others (laughs) that way. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I think Tom Baker is probably off the cuff 
you know, if somebody said, who's your favorite doctor, that's probably who I would say. But there's also the other cop-out answer that I know multiple people who use that my favorite doctor is the doctor that I'm watching right now. So that's also kind of true. Still a cop-out, though. <laughs> I, I have stopped using that one. I think if you listen to early episodes of the show, that's the answer I gave probably for the first two or three years. Because, you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't not true. Uh, and I, I have since sort of committed to one. Would you want Tom Baker as a family member? I, oh, either of no. you. No. Tom Baker, Uncle Tom, like, would you want to have him I, somewhere know, in the family tree? I not wouldn't mind. If he but... wasn't Tom Baker the actor. If he was just Tom oh, Baker. Well. I don't know, but I, I can tell you this. I have always wanted to hear at least one of those green room stories that everybody talks about. Because they always say, oh, that's really, he has really great stories in the in the room, but we can't talk about them on here. Like, well, where can I hear these stories? Yeah, I think I, it would be really nice to get a family gathering with Tom Baker using that kind of sonorous voice. Reading, mm-hmm. reading something by the fireside, you know, maybe like at the end of a really long day at a family gathering and like, with like your nieces and nephews kind of falling asleep in your lap and just kind of him droning on. Like, I think I would appreciate like that, but like, yes. I don't think I'd want to be stuck in a car with him for like a four hour drive. No, that would be, that would probably be a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, the, the semi-distant family member that you see a couple times a year, two or three times a year at the, at the big family gatherings, like, like that, who can hold court at the dinner table and then everybody goes home at the end of the night. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, as among the Doctor Who community, speaking of, tom baker episodes um among the community you're sort of known very well as a kind of a fervent champion of the rebus operation uh do you accept this this role willingly is that is that i walked into it with my eyes open uh it's it is the the fault of another great doctor who podcast reality bomb um they have a, a segment called gallery of the underrated and I maintain that the Rebus Operation is an underrated episode because when you look at all of those like ratings guides where you know people rank the Doctor Who episodes, it's usually like right in the middle, and I disagree with that strenuously. Therefore, <laughs> it's underrated. Um, but yes, yeah, so I ch- I chose to do the Rebus Operation for Gallery of the Underrated at a live show of uh, of Reality Bomb at Gallifrey One. And uh, and yes, Graham, Graham Burke had me on to to do this, and I I chose that in part because this was going to be a live, in front of an audience, episode, and you know that brings with it an extra level of, uh, nerves, I guess, and I just I really wanted something that I felt comfortable and confident talking about, and that is a story that I've seen a billion times and I know it really well. And it really is, I think it's probably just my favorite Doctor Who story of all time. So it was an easy pick for me to be like, yeah, so, you know, it, it might be one that people don't say is terrible, but I think it's still underrated and I don't think it's talked about enough. Uh, maybe it is now because I started that and a lot of people <laughs> have started talking about it because they're making fun of me. But uh, I got severely heckled from the crowd the live crowd by my podcast co-host Deb, who kept saying that it was not underrated over and over again. So that heckling just sort of took on a life of its own and proliferated from our podcast to other podcasts and on and on. And it now is like a a meme that won't die. (laughs) And I'm fine with it because I will be the staunch defender of the Rebus operation because until it's ranked number one, it's underrated. That's what I say. 
I love that story too. I, in fact, the whole uh, Key to Time series, I think that one and um, Stones of Blood are my favorite too. I could watch those over and over. That whole season is just perfection to me. Even even its lower points, I still think are great. The the first real actual true argument that Stephen and I ever had in our marriage was about how to uh, how to use display store the uh, key to time DVDs. <laughs> because there were two different box sets and he Stephen had both of them and he I think he, I can't remember even what the details were but he I think wanted to take the discs from the new version and put them into the case of the old version and I was like no that's heresy you can't do that but he wanted things to match on the shelf anyway we were like that was the first time that we strenuously disagreed with each other about anything <laughs> and we now we laugh about it because now we have blu-rays so all those dvds are gone doesn't matter did you get rid of them? You actually got rid of them? Uh, no, I think they're in a drawer. Okay. I can't. I still have mine. Uh, kind of, I, think... I also haven't also bought, purchased all the, the Blu-rays that, mm-hmm. that have come out. But I still have all my... I, I got... Do you have your VHS? That's what I want to know, Drew. I do. No, no, I, I don't. Because, <laughs> and, and, because Erica, I, I wasn't Rock a on. fan of Doctor Who until 1996. And I didn't oh, right, really right. join fandom until uh, 2005. So gotcha. Uh, I, okay. VHS was never a part. Uh, I have maybe two episodes of Doctor Who, two stories on VHS, and those are only ones that like people have gone. I was at Goodwill and I found this, and I thought of you, and I'm like, oh, that's really kind. <laughs> I don't have a, a VCR, but you know, there's <laughs> there's something there's something aesthetically pleasing, even though I don't have like a matching set. You know, like mm-hmm. I I got the final DVD maybe about three months after the Blu-ray started to come out. And I knew it was a, it was a lost uh-huh. cause, but the used DV, the used media store that I, I get everything from suddenly had this just wash of Doctor Who DVDs became available because mm-hmm. people were like, oh, well, Blu-rays are coming out. I better sell them for the ridiculous prices that they're, they're being asked for <laughs> and make some money off of it and just buy the Blu-rays, which admittedly is probably what I should do too, just considering that the six shelves of dvds that i have on one bookshelf <laughs> i have you know i have one bookshelf it's just the dvds i have six bookshelves that are just the books you know that kind of thing like mm-hmm. i that's gonna change because it'll be one shelf a uh, one row yep. of just the blu-rays and that's in some ways a little sad because i look at that collection of blu-rays as a quest that i went on for about six years and and finished you know i, I got the, the final one the time monster finally came in and when that last <laughs> I held out as long as I could, but I was like, you know, eventually, I, as a completionist, I need to get that time monster. I got it, and I was like, yeah, I don't feel fulfilled at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I was a I was a teenager, and my dad built um, shelves on my wall so I could put up all my Doctor Who VHSs, and eventually, I got all of them. I had all. I still have them. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I went on eBay and replaced my Earthshock VHS copy. <laughs> wow. So, wow. But, uh, yeah, I still have those. I have all the DVDs. I, I mean, yeah, I'm surrounded by Doctor Who paraphernalia, which my wife is like, you know, you should build some shelves, like, in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> Where I don't have to see them anymore. Right, yeah. <laughs> I am a little sad that I eventually got rid of the VHS tapes that my mom taped off of PBS 
because like those I, I mean I, I kept them for a really long time but then I was moving to Canada and Stephen already had all everything on DVD so I was like I don't really need these but just for the you know I don't know the, the sentimental value it would have been a pain in the butt to actually move all of them but uh, it, it sometimes I wish I still had them just because to me the correct way to watch a Tom Baker story is in four parts on PBS through a bunch of snow because our antenna was not that great and you know VHS tracking issues and like that's that's the way it's meant to be did you still have the old commercials I don't know if PBS would would have had commercials or not no No. I mean they they would have like little station breaks a lot of it were uh, was during pledge drives because Um, yeah, the, uh, the, they would do marathons of Doctor Who because Doctor Who was a big moneymaker for their pledge drives. And um, there were a, a couple of different times where my mom actually rented, I think the first time she rented a VCR because we didn't have a VCR at the time, bought a bunch of videotapes and then also rented a hotel room so that she could go to a hotel room and videotape Doctor Who all day long because I think the Green Bay Packers were in the playoffs and by dad was like no i'm using this tv (laughs) you go somewhere else uh which i mean for her going to a hotel room to watch doctor who all day where she doesn't have to deal with her kids uh heaven so you know go mom and then the other time there was a uh the madison pbs station was doing a doctor who marathon and we lived far enough away from madison that we could not get that station but if you drove to a little hotel that was halfway between the milwaukee area and madison then you could get that PBS station. So again, she spent an entire weekend just taping Doctor Who from a hotel room. And that's how we ended up with tapes upon tapes upon tapes. That's hardcore. You didn't stand a chance, did you? (laughs) No, no, I I come by it honestly. (laughs) That's brilliant. What is it about the show? What is it about Doctor Who that that keeps your attention? Uh, I mean, you've done a podcast about it for nearly 10 years. (laughs) What is it about (laughs) Doctor Who that... Uh, I, I I remember when the the your first teaser for Verity showed up. I remember listening listening that first day it dropped on the listening about the snowman. Like I've I've been there since since the beginning. But <laughs> wow. but you know, but it also happened to occur. Like I got a smartphone and got into the fandom and moved to a new town. Like yeah, I think it was like right like Verity started right around the time I got a smartphone. So uh, the first thing I did. When someone told me what a podcast was, I was like, well, do they have Doctor Who podcasts? They do. Cool. I'll listen to all of them. My God, there's 10 podcasts about Doctor Who. How could there be 10 podcasts about one show? Mm-hmm. Little did I know. Right. Um, there were probably 80 at the time, although many of them defunct already at that point. Yeah, probably. I was just behind the times. But what is it about the show? Um, just before we move on about mm-hmm. this, it's just... You know, clearly this is something that meant not not only a lot to, to you, but to your family. Um, mm-hmm. What is it about the show that allows you, that has, let's see how to describe this, that has guided so much of your life? You know, it's, the at the base of it, like it was a science fiction show that was also with fantastical elements to it that was easily accessible. So like that's why... It started to be a thing in our household. Um, I think the reason that my mom glommed onto it so much, and, the, and that I did too, was because it's got great stories, and they're always changing. And it's 
the idea of a person who travels from place to place and writes wrongs, like there are a lot of TV shows that are based on that premise. You know, you know, the, everything from the highway to heaven to the littlest hobo. Like that's that's a real common thing. But the fact that this particular person can do it traveling through space and time and you get that science fiction element in there and then you know layer in all of the you know people say it all the time but yes the fact that the doctor prefers to use you know their their head and their heart and their smarts and their intellect and their kindness to solve the problems as opposed to just shooting things and blowing things up like i wasn't allowed to watch gi joe as a kid i we didn't watch the a team in our household like the the violent stuff was was not a part of my upbringing at all. I was raised on the doctor's sort of problem-solving techniques. And I think that has served me in good stead throughout my life because that just, you know, I would much rather find a way to coexist if possible. And I feel like the show has done a really good job over the years of finding different ways to tell stories that all sort of have that at their heart. We haven't talked about the modern series yet. I wanted to ask you, what are your feelings of the current run and what are you hoping to see from Jodie and Chibnall's final series? I love Jodie Whittaker as a doctor so much. And I'm, I am angry at the global pandemic for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is the fact that it has gummed up the works in terms of my favorite TV show. Uh, I, I would be very interested to see an alternate universe where not only Doctor Who, but a bunch of other shows that I've really liked that have had to change gears because of this, like what they would have ended up being like. And so I don't know what I'm hoping for because I know how many constraints have been placed on the the writing and the filming of, of what we're going to get going forward. I'm really heartbroken that, uh, that Jodie Whittaker is, is leaving, but the amount of time that she has and energy that she's put into this role, I feel like is pretty much on a par with, with all of the other modern doctors, except for Christopher Eccleston, who left after one season. Um, you know, her time in that seat leading that the charge of the flagship show of the BBC that's a huge huge burden whether you're actually actively filming or not so I I don't blame her for wanting to move on to other projects but I've really liked her as the doctor from moment one like I think she actually had me quicker than most doctors do in terms of just being like oh yeah she gets it like this is she is inhabiting this role and she is wonderful um I think I I think I enjoy the stories and the writing of the Chibnall era more than most people that I know there are a lot of people who are, are not, you know, digging it as much. But then again, I know some people who this is their favorite era of Doctor Who, and they're going to be really sad to see it go. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, if you're not totally in love with Doctor Who, wait <laughs> 10 minutes. and It's about to change. Um, I think I'm probably more nervous about who they put in the show running chair next than I am about who they put in front of the screen. Uh, I, I feel yeah. like they've never they've never missed with a Doctor uh, actor. Um, I feel like it might be more easy to miss with a showrunner. <laughs> I don't want them to do that. Is there a forerunner that you'd like to see in there? I, you know, I would love to see a woman of color in uh, actually as the doctor or uh, as the sh- as the showrunner. Um, I know that the BBC is hesitant to put somebody in that position, um, in the, the showrunner position, who has not already had showrunning experience which is an understandable thing because that's you know you're you're the ceo of a company and a head writer and you know a a producer and and all of these things at the same time so that's that's a huge 
a pair of shoes to fill no matter what. Um, but I think telling the kinds of stories that Doctor Who is telling these days, and I hope continues to tell, it is important to have a diverse set of voices on the other side of the camera. So whoever they pick, I hope that they will, if they don't go the writer's room approach that Chris Chibnall did, I hope that they will at least branch out and try to keep those voices as diverse as possible. Well, after I found out my husband was having an affair and gambled away everything we spent our entire marriage building together, I figured, hey, what do I have to lose? Nothing. So I lied about my age. It's not a crime, Cheryl. Well, it's maybe a small white collar offense. But the real crime is that no one will give a 40-year-old woman a chance to start over again. Exactly. Isn't life just one big confidence game? I mean, true. It's pretty stressful. I cannot imagine how Diana would react if she found out the truth. Oh my God, Cheryl, she can't know. I would lose my job. And Diana would be humiliated. Gawker would have a field day with this, but I would never. Good. Please, Liza, I'm your friend. Erica, we know that whenever we invite a guest on the show, we know that we're here to talk about Doctor Who. We clearly are talking about Doctor Who. You clearly love Doctor Who. It's 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 safe to say it's in the blood. <laughs> but we also know that Doctor Who is not the end all and be all of your fandom. Uh, occasionally, you have moments where you can talk about something else. <laughs> uh, so when we we have a guest on, we ask them to bring a show, a pick of the month, something that is not Doctor Who. So would you tell us what you have chosen and, and tell us why? Uh, I chose a TV series called Younger. Um, and part of the reason I chose it was just timing. It was I had just finished the entirety of the uh, of the show, and it was all sort of I was having you know warm fuzzy feelings, and and it was fresh in my mind. But also, it's a show that I just really want to talk about, and I have not had a chance to talk about it with anybody else. Um, it's it's a show of uh, short episodes, which I, I hate leading with that, but it's such an important thing. Um, I, in, in my life to be able to find shows of sort of like different lengths and styles to fit different parts of my day, different parts of my life, different things that I'm in the mood for. Um, so it's it's sort of a comedy drama. It's not I, like I don't want to call it a sitcom because it does not feel like that at all. I'm not a big sitcom fan. Um, and it's uh, apparently the beginning of it was based on a book. I had never read the, the book, but it's about a woman who is 40 and pretending to be 26 in order to get a job uh, after she had raised a child. And it sounds like if somebody would have pitched me that as the theme, I would have been like, no, that sounds that sounds really bad. I don't want to I don't want to watch that. Uh, but I heard enough people talk about it that whose opinions I trusted that I was like, OK, I'm going to give it a shot. And it completely won me over. So there you have it. That's great. When did you first start watching it? And why did you stick with it? You know, I I don't even remember. It must have been like maybe a, a cup, two or three years ago, because uh, it certainly wasn't during pandemic times, although I blasted through a bunch of it um, during the pandemic. But I think I heard about it for the first time when it first came out, which was uh, 2015. And I think I heard Linda Holmes talking about it on Pop Culture Happy Hour. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. The way she just described it sounded good. And then I forgot about it for a while. And then somebody else brought it up like years later. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was the thing I was going to look for. And living in Canada, you can't always find the things that people in the U.S. are talking about. <laughs> so uh, I think maybe I would have watched it sooner if I would have known exactly where to find it. 
I think I ended up having to wait for it to show up on Amazon Prime, which is where I can get it here in Canada. And I was sucked in like just by the very first couple of episodes. It was it was it's a it's a zany premise, I admit, but it's a premise that I really like I am a woman in her 40s. And yeah, I definitely get treated differently now than I did back when I was younger. Title title significance right there. And so it it spoke to me on a level that I maybe wasn't expecting at first because I was like, oh, yeah, this, this society really sucks, but we can be funny about it. And then as the season, the first season progressed, um, I think by the time the first season was over and we were into the second season, I realized that the thing that I actually really loved the most about the show and that kept me watching is the fact that there are no villains on this show. The drama comes from the fact that she's keeping a secret there are, you know, there are some people who are nicer than others, but throughout the course of all of the seasons, even the people who are kind of, you know, prickly and rude in early seasons, you get to see their humanity and you come to love everybody. And even the people who are kind of working against the characters that you're rooting for are drawn well enough that you understand why they're doing what they're doing. They're not two-dimensional villains. Everybody's just a person, and they're just trying to get through their day, and the drama comes from from the secret to start with, and then there's more of a love triangle as th- things go on. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a good love triangle, and this was a very good love triangle. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've I'm going to say, learned from, from being a podcaster is frequently when we're talking about shows we'll ask ourselves, who is this show for? Like, Who is the target audience of this program? Now, it's tricky with Doctor Who because it's a family program that, that as we have described, runs the gamut of... of it, it can be really for anybody, right? Because it's kind of all over the place. Who would you say that younger... Who is the target audience for younger? Because I was watching it and I was trying to come up with an idea for this. And I, I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, I was just going to say me. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's firmly planted at me. No, um, I mean, it's it's definitely something that skews toward resonating with women, uh, people who have l- that lived experience of living in our Western society as a woman. Um, I mean, certainly women in their 40s are going to relate to the main character, who I should say is played by Sutton Foster, uh, whom I knew from Bunheads, which was uh, an Amy Sherman Palladino show, which sadly only ran for, for one season. Um, but uh, but she's also apparently like a, a Broadway superstar, so a lot of people know her from from that. So she can she can sing and dance, and she's, she's really good. But that she doesn't do that in this show. This is not that kind of a show. Um, I do think that women who are younger will probably also relate to it because, uh, especially at the beginning, there's a lot of push and pull between the things that a 40-year-old housewife from Jersey doesn't know, whereas, you know, the the young, hip Brooklynites know about Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and, and all of those all of those things. So uh, there's a lot that I think would resonate with with people sort of from both age groups, but I do think it's probably more aimed at the slightly older women because it's kind of like your point of view character is the woman who is pretending to be 26. Sure. Brent, had you watched the show uh, before Erica suggested it? No. Um, in fact, I, I thought it was uh, ironic when you were talking about you were in Canada and couldn't get it because... I had never heard of this show before, so when I looked it up, I saw it had seven seasons. So I thought, oh, maybe this is a popular Canadian show. 
because <laughs> you know there's a lot of shows up there that are really popular and go on for years and years like uh, um, some Heartland or something that's big up there that, that nobody's heard of <laughs> down here. Shot three hours south of me, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Lots of horses uh, in that show. <laughs> but no, it, it was a, a new Darren Star show who who did mm-hmm. 90210 and Sex in the City and Melrose. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So with his name, I was surprised I'd never heard of it. But yeah, I was watching the first episode and my wife was passing through and she laughed and was the second episode. She was hooked. <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah. So when it first started out, I thought, "Uh oh, is this another preppy team drama?" You know. And uh, but after a while, I realized I was wrong, and that the writing on here is very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise for the show I, I thought was very good, but I thought, "How are they going to keep this going for seven years?" <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they did manage to keep it going even after the secret was out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and you know I, what I watched before we recorded, I, I saw all of season one. I saw uh, the last two episodes of season two where a certain character is wiped out (laughs) Um, and um, kind of disturbingly, actually. And then I watched the very last episode. Um, But yeah, the one thing I wanted to say about this, uh, too, is that it's a very bingeable show. I don't know if bingeable is a word, but uh, it's uh, like you said, the episodes are really short and... um, you know, it's not like each one ends on a cliffhanger, but each one ends where you're like, "Oh my god, I got to see what happens next," mm-hmm. and you keep watching. And it was it was a very easy watch, and I I did I liked it a lot. It was very funny. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it it's it's kind of like you're right. It's not a cliffhanger at the end of every episode, but it's sort of like reading a book where the chapter ends and it's not a cliffhanger, but you still really want to go into the next chapter. That's that's what it feels. And I mean, and she's working in publishing. So I think the, the comparison to a book would be something that uh, Darren Starr would probably appreciate. Yeah, it's a soap opera, but it's a good soap opera, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is rare, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either. Um, uh, and I have heard of all of the other Darren Starr shows up to that point and i have watched some of them i think i I, of all the the darren star programs i think i've seen more of sex in the city than i had anything else um and so i i went in when you you described it i thought okay this is interesting i'll start watching it we i was just sat down with my wife to watch it and i i went in not reading any reviews and basically just the the premise that you had described to us and i was like Mm -hmm. okay yeah watched it liked it cool i watched a bunch of the first season episodes um, you had given us a couple to specifically to, to look out for. But I also, like Brent, thought, how is this going to be maintained for for seven seasons? And, and I have to say this. I get embarrassed for characters very mm. easily. And so there are a lot of television programs that I cannot watch that thrive on this. We're going to put our characters in awkward situations and watch them squirm. And when that happens, I turn it off. And there's a lot of shows that I have just flat out stopped watching. Um, I can barely get through an episode of Friends uh, because as soon as Ross <laughs> gets into any situation, I'm like, I'm done. Oh, God. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Um, and I thought for sure this is going to be one of those shows. And I felt really bad because I'm like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to start watching this. And the weight of her secret is going to weigh on me so much that I'm going to internalize it and I will not be able to handle it. And so what I went ahead and did was I read every uh, episode guide of every single episode (laughs) 
I spent, I don't know, three hours one day just on some <laughs> wiki pages, and I read the entirety, episode by episode, two paragraphs per episode, mm-hmm. uh, without even experiencing who some of these characters were. And I actually got upset with some of the things going, <laughs> how could so-and-so do that to so-and-so? Um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm going to go back and rewatch all seven seasons, but I mm-hmm. probably there were a couple of episodes that just the descriptors uh, on the pages interest me enough that I kind of want to go back and see how it was done, because it's still from a narrative standpoint, really interesting to see how that story continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also am not a big fan of cringe like cringeworthy television i my my threshold is definitely higher than yours but it's it's not something that i love and that was something that i was worried about as well uh but i felt like they handled it so well the the way that the main character liza communicates about the secret like she's not the only person on the show that knows it which is a very helpful thing um her her friend who is her same age played by uh, debbie mazar uh, is is in on it from the very beginning so uh, and the way that they communicate about it just felt so natural and so realistic to me that that took a little bit of the emotional weight off um, for me because that wasn't the only person who knew the secret. And then I really felt like the show did a good job of doling out who learned the secret at what time. It made me feel much more comfortable about the whole thing that she wasn't like it... I think I would not have liked it if suddenly everybody would have found out all at the same time and it would have been like a big, you know, special finale episode and then that's the end. That, that would have sucked. Um, but instead, different characters learn at different times and under different circumstances and they all have different reactions to it. And they're all realistic reactions. Like, you know, nobody's just going to flat out forgive her and just be like, oh, that's totally fine because you've been lying to me for like two years of our friendship, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's a real friendship, you know, it can... It can last through that, but you still have to go through the the ups and the downs of providing that kind of information, <laughs> dropping that sort of a bombshell or or having it dropped for you in some cases. And by the time most to everybody uh, figures out and knows the, the secret, by then you are firmly into uh, love triangle territory and you have the, the push and pull of, you know, Liza having a either really hot sexy relationship with a guy who is 26 um or just being really good friends with him later on and then on the other side her boss's boss which like i try not to think too much about the like the the workplace politics of (laughs) getting in a relationship with the you know ceo of your company um that's it's a TV show. I, you know, I, I let some things, I let some things go. But, uh, but her relationship with him is much more sort of age appropriate. They understand the same, the same things in life. They're coming from a much more similar place. He's got kids. She's got a daughter, uh, and he is also a really good guy. She, it, like both of the men in in this scenario, are fantastic and living their own interesting lives, and they both care about her, and she cares about both of them, and. It, uh, I, I didn't love the final season as much as the rest of it, but I'll, I think a lot of that was because of the pandemic. Once again, it comes back to like they weren't able to get everybody that they wanted to have back for that season. So that kind of changed the tenor of things. Um, 
the woman who uh, is her boss, um, whom I just love, is was not basically they had her on Skype, I think, a couple of times in the final season. I was like, that is not enough because that lady is like, I, I want to channel her dress sense and her her giant statement jewelry like that is that's goals. That is what that is. Oh, you're talking about Diana, right? Yes, Diana Trout. Her, she's just like, and at the beginning, she's really like she's sort of set up like she is going to be the quirky villain, and that's totally not not what she ends up being. Even even fairly early on, that's a uh, they sort of. And the interesting thing is, they don't actually. I was going to say they soften her. They don't. They never really soften her. She is always the same, like you know, straight up gonna tell you exactly what I think of you type person. But they show you enough of her life and her interacting with everything and everyone, and show that yeah, she will absolutely insult you to your face, but she cares, <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> Well, is there a, a favorite character of yours or, or at least one that um, you relate to very well? I'm kind of happy to say that I don't really relate to anybody in the show <laughs> because that's just uh, – I I am terrible at secrets. I am not a good liar. This Like I, I could never pull this off even if I was like physically in, in a position to pull something like this off. Uh-uh. That would be really uncomfortable. Um, I think – it might just come down to the fact that I think he's so pretty, but I think Josh, played by uh, Nico Tortorella, is is my favorite because he, from the very beginning, is kind of the core of the show when it comes to being solid. Like, he is just this down-to-earth character who is happy to be living his life the way that he's living it, and he kind of just doesn't care what anybody else thinks about that, and is always trying to do the best that he can for the people around him, no matter who that happens to be or, or you know, the way that that might have to work out. Uh, yeah, he's just, he's pure. He's he's the purest character of, of all of them. And, it, you know, I think he kind of gets a raw deal in the final season. He's barely in it. Um, and that's really frustrating to me and I think that it may be because of the way that the the final season had to be sort of changed and and, and written differently so I think in part because I think he's very pretty in part because I feel bad for him at the end but mostly because I just think that his character is just so sweet all the time I'm right there with you. He was my favorite also. Because, you know, when when I first started watching it, I felt like he was going to be the rebel guy that was kind of a douche and too right. cool for school and, you know, all this. And uh, But I found him to be a really realistic character and a nice guy. So I really liked him right off the bat. And I was rooting for him and Liza, but I knew it wouldn't end well when he found out about her. So, uh, But I skipped ahead, and spoilers, everybody, <laughs> but I skipped ahead and saw the last episode and mm-hmm. found out he had a baby. He was making a lot of money, so that was good. Mm-hmm. And and we'll talk about the ending in a few minutes, but, um, yeah, it looked like there was a little bit of hope there at the end also, but uh, we'll see. I read a lot of what was going on, but that's very different from actually sitting and watching the show and absorbing who these people are and and how they interact with one another. Um, I got to say that I liked Liza best when she was interacting with Charles's kids um, or just interacting. I mean, like that's the thing too. I like you, Erica. I didn't find a character that I felt like I was like in Mm -hmm. any way. No, normally I'm going to look for the nerd and the geek, 
Um, those are those are my people. Um, <laughs> but I also work with children every single day, uh, assuming that there's not a pandemic going on. And so whenever someone is good with kids, they usually got my they, I'm on their team. Um, and I think really on early on, like second or third episode where she is called to babysit Charles's kids. Yep. I was like, yeah, that's I that would have been what I did. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there there are other characters, too. I, I did watch a little I, I watched episodes here and there. Um, mm-hmm. I actually quite like Lauren. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Hilary Duff has some, or not Lauren, sorry. Yeah, Lauren's, uh, that's uh, Kelsey, right? Ke- yes, Kelsey is Hilary Duff? Yeah. Yes. I have a hard time liking Hilary Duff's character because of previous relationship with Hilary Duff, uh-huh. not a personal one, but just because <laughs> of, the other stuff I, I ran a planetarium at one point in time. I had I worked with somebody who was obsessed and possibly even uh, obsessed in a level that was unhealthy. Um, and so like for two years I heard and saw uh, the, the conversation was always about Hillary Duff posters. I would come into my office and there'd be posters of Hillary Duff up on the walls. And so, I mean, it's not Hillary Duff's fault, you know, uh, you know, she, she's not in charge of that parasocial relationship, but I, I still like, I can, I can totally understand how that might sour you. This is actually the first thing I think I'd ever really seen her in. So mm-hmm. I only just sort of tangentially knew her as you know former child star and was kind of surprised at how good she was and and yes. the range in her chops but no yeah. uh, lauren played by molly bernard she is just the wackiest <laughs> and i love her so much she stays wacky yeah wacky's great she but she, again like you were saying with josh she's definitely stays true to who she is as a character and there yep. are moments where just kind of reading in the descriptors i'm like that maybe might be a little too much for me as i'm watching it. like maybe that would have felt cringeworthy but because i was reading it rather than watching it i felt mm-hmm. that there was a disconnect there so I, I i took part of it so part of it is like i want to kind of go back and look at some of those episodes that i, I read the descriptors of and go Almost like a test for myself, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> dip, dip your toe into the cringe water. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you feel it, um, I guess we're kind of rooting for for Liza, um, do you feel like her character arc, was she had a good character arc? Like, is that something that you... The final season, and I guess the final episodes, uh, what is the word I want to say? Not what they deserve, but like, was appropriate for the characters themselves? I think so. Like I said, season seven was not my favorite. And I think the reasons for it were not entirely due to, to the writing itself. Um, I think that it made sense for her to be pulled in two different directions. Um, And I really, really liked the very, very end. Uh, I, I am a sucker for series finales that echo the very first episode of the show, um, whether that be in the staging, in the writing, in the characters, in the way they interact, whatever. And this is one where at the very end, you have a scene that is almost word for word exactly the same as a scene from the first episode <laughs> of her and Josh. So that that scene made up for a lot, I think, of of the, the, the final season. Uh, like I said, I didn't I missed having Josh as a central part of her life toward the end because that really dropped off quite a bit. Uh, and I don't know if that's they, if they weren't able to film together or what the deal was, but it, it just seemed like he was really just not, not around a whole lot. And I was never 
entire well I went back and forth sometimes I was team Josh sometimes I was team Charles like because both relationships actually made really good sense for her but at the end of it I was I, I think I was always rooting for her to get back together with Josh even despite the age difference and the fact that the very end leaves it in a place that's not completely closed off but not completely open either like it, it very because the because it's echoing exactly what happened in, in the beginning of season one and then the rest of season one has her getting together with Josh makes me leads me to believe that there is a good chance that those crazy kids will <laughs> will find a way to make it work and that definitely makes me happy uh, in terms of just her overall character character arc I do think that they did a nice job of helping her come to terms with the fact that she made a really weird decision to try to do, keep the secret for so long and had to basically come out in a way to all of these people and, and show her true self. And I think she became more comfortable with her true self and kind of learned who she was as a person because at the beginning, she really is a pretty sheltered housewife from New Jersey and has not done a lot. I mean, there are a whole bunch of lines in the first couple episodes where you have uh, Hillary Duff's character, Kelsey, saying like, you know, I don't want to wake up when I'm 40 and realize I missed my life. And that is kind of what happened to her. And she's such a interesting and vibrant character that it's it's sad that she spent all... I mean, it's wonderful that she spent all these years raising a daughter who's great because her daughter is also in the show on and off and she's delightful. But, you know, her husband is a real drag. <laughs> He's, he's in several episodes, and it's just like, wow, you really stuck with him that whole time. You poor dear. I'm very glad you're free. So I think a lot of the show is not just about the secret and the love triangle, but it's also about her discovering who she is as a person and finally getting to be as r ridiculous and fun and vibrant and smart as she probably should have been able to be all of those years and, you know, really didn't get to because she was, you know, playing housewife and driving her kids and her husband around. So you were happy with the series finale, how everything worked out? By the very end, yes. I, w I was definitely glad that she didn't end up with Charles because by the end, it was clear that th those two were not really meant to be together. As much as I agree with you, Drew, that her when she's interacting with Charles's kids like that was wonderful. But I also think that especially in that episode in the first season, the reason that that was so wonderful is because she, that was the first time she actually got to take a breath and be the real her in a long time because she had been pretending for so long. And finally, she's able to interact with kids and she's a mom and she knows how to do that. And she can just relax and, and feel comfortable that way. Um, I think that that even though she got along really well with those kids and even though she and Charles could relate on a, a grown-up level, I don't think that either one of them were ever in the same emotional place at the right time in the right way for them to be the, the one true pairing that I was ever hoping for. So while I didn't love everything in season seven in terms of the way that they made things happen, um, I did like the very, very end. And it actually left me like really pleased with the show so by the end of that that last episode i was i was crying but it was happy crying how about you brent i know that you didn't watch a lot of seasons in between but between what you saw in the first season and, and those episodes and watching the, the final episode did you were you cool with it yeah um i was a little surprised that um she didn't end up with charles but again i was rooting for josh so i was okay with that i 
but again, I, I had no idea what happened like those five years in between. So <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could have been, I could have had a totally different outlook had I'd watched the whole series, but just what I saw, I mean, it looked like it was a, a really good uh, finale and especially that last scene I agree with you that was a that was a great scene that really echoed uh, the beginning mm-hmm. yeah I mean I was I was literally going oh my god and like screaming at the screen and then crying and so it, I mean it, it it definitely worked for me because I had a very <laughs> active emotional reaction to it I didn't have nearly the investment that you did I mean and clearly this is not a show that that has been in my life for more than a month mm-hmm. um uh, and I know that with Darren Star, you cannot know what's going to happen until the very last, like until the credits roll, essentially. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the Sex and the City finale is kind of a roller coaster as well. And this this finale certainly was a roller coaster. I do have a question for you. Um, we had seven seasons of the show. Uh, does seven years pass in between episode one and, and the final episode? It, are, how much time are we mm-hmm. led to believe has that passed? Is- that is a good question, and I don't know if it's quite that long because I think they actually had—I mean, they had a, they had a season every year, but I'm trying to remember if it actually—I—I—I I, I think it is supposed to be a little shorter, maybe, but maybe mm-hmm. not. Yeah, I guess you know. I I think what I'm discovering in my inability to answer is the fact that it doesn't matter that much to the plot exactly how much time has passed, but it is definitely a space of years because you sure. know like like Brent said you know Josh does get almost get married and have a baby and like that baby is a toddler sort of by the mm-hmm. end of it so like time is definitely passing but sure. maybe not maybe not 7 years worth of time this um, is such a a weird niggling thing to like to to pick at i'm not pick i'm sorry i shouldn't be picking at it <laughs> but here's the thing so i'm trying to imagine being uh, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern situation where I'm I'm at Empirical and I've been in Empirical for let's say seven years um, and suddenly I hear because by the way spoilers listeners for younger uh, let's just go ahead and say it since we're spoiling the finale um, let's say I've been Empirical and I've been there for seven or more years and um, I hear that the owner is stepping down and uh, this woman who who had not a lot of experience up until that point and is now suddenly kind of not in charge of the entire magazine, but sort of gets a spot. And I'm like, I'm trying to imagine how the rest of the staff feels about her getting the position in which she did. As you alluded to, there's a bit of television style work ethics involved. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. you know what? This is not, this is not a conversation that needs to even happen in my mind because (laughs) it just goes to show like how little I have invested in watching the show because you know, I'm sure someone who's going to watch Doctor Who and go, wait, they traveled in time and space in a tiny little box. You're like, sure, but it makes sense within the... (laughs) So I'm going to shut up now. And I was just kind of curious about the time aspect of it, but it it really led to no point whatsoever. I ramble. I apologize. Well, you know what? You you do bring up an interesting thing because going back and rewatching the first couple of episodes, which I did to, to prepare for this, after having watched all the way to the end, it is markedly different in terms of how many extras they have on set because there are a ton of people wandering around in the first few episodes whereas by the end there are not a lot of people working for imperial which is also part of the plot because they're having you know money troubles so my feeling is that if you were somebody that worked at empirical 
and you were lucky enough to still have a job at the end of it, having had a job at the beginning, you might actually be okay with it simply because of all of the stuff that happened in the middle. And I feel like both um, both Hilary Duff's character and, uh, and Sutton Foster's character do an awful lot to keep that business from not dying so like they they really do save it so i think anybody who is witness to that is probably going to feel like okay we're in as safe a pair of hands as you can be in in the publishing business um regardless of exactly how many years it has that have that have passed absolutely fair actually it was was making me think it would be interesting to be someone who works in the publishing business and and get their take on i bet it's i bet it's terrible yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe, maybe sure it's not it realistic at all. <laughs> well, speaking of unrealistic, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm always kind of curious about since this is initially a Doctor Who podcast, if we were to have a mashup uh, between Doctor Who and Younger, how how might that go? And which Doctor would you cast to be a part of that? We, we got a crossover event, the Younger Doctor Who crossover event. What what's the th- what's the theme and who's the doctor? That's it. Well, I mean, not being a huge fan of crossovers, I'm not great at coming up with stuff like this. Sure. But I would say easily Jodie Whittaker would need to be the doctor mm-hmm. because this is this is a, a show about what it's like to try to get along in the world as a woman, and that is something that Doctor Who has recently been able to attack, like you know, take on that challenge. So I, I think it would certainly be Jodie Whittaker's doctor. And I feel like it would, it would probably end up with uh, happening later in the run of Younger and having the Doctor echo some of the same confusions that Liza has at the very beginning because, you know, Liza doesn't know about Snapchat and, and all of those things. And, you know, every time the Doctor mentions Twitter, it's always like with a little bit of either derision or confusion, whichever Doctor <laughs> it happens to be. Um, and I, I feel like probably given the the sort of the tenor of younger as a largely comedic show you might have the doctor trying to be a publishing person and trying to fake her way through it kind of in the same way as i started out trying to fake her way through it um and then you know i guess you would have whichever companions the 13th doctor has at the time helping her through it and trying to keep her grounded and tell her how things actually work. I'm not sure how the science fiction aspect um, would come in. I don't know. Maybe uh, an evil publisher tries to take over Imperial, but it's actually, you know, an, an alien from some other planet or something. Or Imperial <laughs> absorbs Doctor Who magazine somehow in a buyout mm. and, uh, you know, yeah. Some, yeah, yeah. An American company. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not, not in charge of a beloved Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> well, to change gears... Um, unless there, you have some final thoughts on, on Younger that you'd like to talk about. Just that everybody should watch it. Just give it a chance. Yeah. And I, if, it doesn't suck, if it doesn't suck you in by like the first several episodes, then it's probably not going to. But if you find it delightful, it gets even more delightful. True words. Um, so as is traditional at Who and Company, members of your household are allowed two selections <laughs> uh, when joining the company. Uh, so... We, Erica, what's your second pick of the month? Uh, my second pick is something that's not actually a show. So I feel like, you know, I get the asterisk there. So I'm not technically bringing you two shows. Um, it is something without which I'm not sure I would have gotten through the last 18 months. You see, early on in the pandemic, when I had started working from home and we weren't going out a lot, we weren't doing a lot. And there's, a you know, 
everything was scary. Nobody quite understood what was going on. And it was just all fear all the time. And I thought Stephen was like, yeah, we should, you know, have some turn on some random things. I was like, you know what we need to do? We need to find a kitten cam. And he's like, what's a kitten cam? And I I had seen bits and pieces of other kitten cams. Like sometimes when I'd be having a bad day at work, I would, you know, somebody would tweet about a kitten cam and I would just click on the link and I would watch that. So I said, oh, a kitten cam is where somebody who has a litter of kittens sets up a, a webcam or two and just shows kittens live on the Internet all day long. And Stephen was like, that's kind of amazing. Let's try that. So he, I think he just did a search. And the very first thing that came up was called Kitten Academy on YouTube. And we have had Kitten Academy on at least one screen in our household literally every day since then. And that was like the first two weeks of me working from home. Uh, Not only that, but we uh, took one of our old computer monitors and set it in the living room next to our TVs because we already have two TVs in the living room. But now there's technically three because one of them is a monitor and all it has is it is plugged into I think like our original Amazon Fire Stick and every morning that sucker gets turned on set to Kitten Academy and it's just like those cats are on there all day long they they cycle through um, different litters this is a this is a house where like this is this is what they do they have two different rooms so there are two different litters of kittens at different uh, different sort of ages so like right now they have a bunch of uh, five little kittens that are all their adopters are already set up um, they're going to be picked up over the course of the next month they're going to they're going to go home and then there's also a pregnant mom cat in the annex which is the smaller room and she will be giving birth any day now to another litter of kittens and um, Mr. A, who is in charge of the Kitten Academy, does just a wonderful job of um, helping socialize the kitties, making sure that they're all healthy, taking care of them, teaching them how to play, teaching them how to play well, teaching them how to get used to being with other cats because they actually also have four cats that are referred to as the faculty that are all adult cats that um, can help socialize these kittens. So like I I don't live in the U.S., but if I did, I would probably have already adopted one of these kitties because uh, they are just so well cared for and, you know, not trained because training a cat is that's a difficult thing. But uh, but yeah, we have we have come to love many litters of cats and they do the thing where they have the cute um, names where all their names kind of go together. For example, the current um, the current class of cats is the mom is Loom and all the kittens have different pattern names. So you get like Herringbone and Chevron and Paisley and Argyle and who am I forgetting? Oh, uh, Basket Weave. (laughs) So like that's the kitten names, and they're all kind of like that. So yeah, I I would not I would not be here speaking to you in intelligible sentences today if it were not for Kitten Academy over the last year and a half. Brent, have you watched Kitten Academy? When you first mentioned this uh, about a month ago, I I turned it on and I watched a little bit for the very first time, and almost immediately there was drama. Oh. Uh, you could see <laughs> you could see one kitten, uh, Princess something Paisley. Uh, Okay, and and she was wandering around, uh, and then in the other room, a kitten is jumping in and out of a swinging basket, and then you hear the guy say, oh, oh no, oh no, we have an emergency, and he puts the camera down, (laughs) it runs across the room, and he says... "Uh, well, he runs across the room with the camera, so you see it all jerking <laughs> around and stuff. And he and he says, "I have to put this down." So he puts the camera down, and then when it's back up, apparently one of the kittens had diarrhea all over himself, and he's being washed off. So you know, good times for that guy. Uh, but <laughs> it was very funny. That's hilarious. Yeah, he, Mr. A puts up with a an awful, awful lot. 
<laughs> I've had it on since you mentioned it as being a second choice. And you're like, well, I have these three things. I want to kind of want to do this one. And I was like, well, let's do both. We could save Steven two episodes as much as five years back. Let's sure why not? And so yeah, I've I've had it on. Um, I'll pop, occasionally pop it off and work. Actually, I really have been a fan of live cams for last decade or so. And since I used to work in science centers, most of my live cams that I, I check in on on a regular basis are from zoos. I, I love right. watching animals, especially animals that I have a cat. 17 mm-hmm. years old, he's sitting here on the corner of my bed staring at me. I'm sure <laughs> he's done something horrible that I'm going to find later. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I watch a platypus cam on a regular basis, and uh, I really like uh, giraffe cams. And there's one where they just raise uh, mountain lion kits. Ooh. and uh, or Not kits, that's foxes. <laughs> anyway, but like there's an eagle cam that I occasionally will watch too. It's just up in a really tall tree and most of the time there's nothing in there and every once in a while this massive form will sweep in. And it's just really, it's such a fantastic way to connect you with a different world. It's, I think, a very pure way to just shut off your brain uh, and just concentrate on something else and just be a part of someone else's moment Uh, Mm because it's not scripted. Uh, You know, with cams, there's... You don't know what you're going to get. I turned on um, Kitten Academy today just to kind of see what was up. And in 30 minutes, no one moved. Like there was zero (laughs) movement whatsoever. And I'm like, yeah, it's three o'clock in the afternoon uh, (laughs) and it's kittens. There's no like there was a sunbeam in focus in the picture. No one's lying in the sunbeam. Who doesn't lie in a sunbeam? (laughs) You know, so but even then you just don't know what you're gonna get and you're right it's just kind of like watching it hoping to see something waiting waiting mm-hmm. five minutes went by ten minutes went by and suddenly <laughs> i'm like oh god i'm so glad no customer uh patrons asked me to, <laughs> to help them in any way you know my other uh, other co-workers are like going what you got kitten cam. Like, cool we're all just kind of sitting in our chairs <laughs> waiting to see something cool really wanting to see a couple of kittens play with one another but mm-hmm. so. yeah the a nice thing about it is you can uh, scrub back up to 12 hours. So if you're just like, if you're suddenly there and you're like, okay, I need a hit of kittens running around and being absolutely bananas, you can just scrub back until you see the action start happening. And then, you know, you, you get that hit and then you can just, you know, go on and, with the rest of your day and, and do what you want. Or you can be like me who specifically bought a tablet to put next to my work screen my computer that I can just have it on all the time. I actually got my boss hooked on it. So every once in a while, I'll get a DM from my boss going, oh my God, did you see what Paisley just did? <laughs> and I'll have to scrub back like 15 seconds and be like, oh wow, she fell out of the tree. Whoops. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, we have gotten so much joy uh, and relaxation because there's, you know, when there's downtime and kittens are not doing anything, like there's there's a piece to that as well. Um, just to know that they're, you know, they're out there and they're they're sleeping and they're fine um, that uh, both Stephen and I have, they have a Patreon page. So like we both give them money every month on Patreon. They actually have a discord as well for people who are patrons. I have not signed up for that myself just because that I do not need another thing to log into and talk to people. But Stephen did sign up for it so that he can, you know, if we have a question about something that's happening or like one of the kitties uh, broke his leg and had to be in a, a little cast for a while, which was, you know, very sad, but also super adorable. Um, and yeah, so Stephen could log into the Discord and, you know, get details on exactly what was what was happening there because all of those people are just like, it's a really kind community and everybody just pays attention to the cats and, and knows what's going on. And a lot of the people on that Discord apparently have adopted 
previous like cats from previous litters so you can still get updates on some of the the kitties that you learned to love <laughs> months back i i think i i have never joined instagram because i'm still salty at instagram for for doing ios first and not giving android a chance for a while and i hold the grudge for a very long time but i think at some point i may have to join instagram just so i can watch, like see the instagram accounts of all of these cats who have been adopted and then their new adopters create instagram accounts for like adorable kitties that i miss and love <laughs> that's cool uh erica before we let you go are there any projects that you'd like to plug uh, well, you know, we mentioned uh, at the top that I do a lot on the Incomparable Podcast Network. So uh, as I said, I just finished the saga of rereading epics. That's sort of like the, the most recent podcast that I have finished. It is now an, an entire thing that you can go and listen to all of. So if you happen to be a classic sci-fi fan, especially if you read Julian May's saga of Pleiocene Exile and Galactic Milieu series back in the day, uh, boy, revisiting it from 2021 eyes is uh it's a bit of a trip so that was that was a fun thing to do um and yeah just i'm i'm all over the incomparable network total party kill is probably the thing that i am most fervently active in constantly in in part because i'm also the editor of that show but it's video and audio and just a bunch of knuckleheads playing dungeons and dragons is the best way to describe it that's awesome well thank you so much for for joining us today thank you for having me and thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show at patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. I need you to double confirm the RSVP list, and make sure Anderson Cooper's office knows we will be sending a car for him and his hot Latin boyfriend. Done and done. And Annabelle insists that all the vodka tomorrow night... Organic and gluten-free, got it. Are you limping? What's wrong? I need you not crippled right now. I'm sorry, I took a CrossFit class this morning, and I think I tore my... Everything. Liza, when I was your age, I could run a 10K and rehydrate with white Russians. No, no, I don't need a peahen. I need a peacock. Cock! I need at least three of the biggest, most beautiful cocks you have. Liza, come in my office.